Welcome to the New York City Bar Association podcast. In this episode, tokenized assets and blockchain. Robert Schwinger and Hector Ivan Velez are co-chairs of the Distributed Ledger Technology and Blockchain Subcommittee of the City Bar Task Force on Digital Technologies. They unpacked the big upsides to tokenization of assets. Tokenization democratizes access to investment opportunities. It can transform various industries by providing more liquidity, transparency, and accessibility. Robert and Hector explored some of the technical challenges in implementation. The more we make carbon credits accessible by tokens, the more we need to think about what that does to the market structure. And they dug into some of the outright barriers to adoption of asset tokenization. A lot of things in real property are still tied in statutes and regulations to formalities of an earlier age. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers, and not necessarily of the city bar. Here's Robert Schwinger. Welcome to the inaugural podcast of the Distributed Ledger Technology and Blockchain Subcommittee of the New York City Bar's Task Force on Digital Technologies. I'm Bob Schwinger. I'm a commercial litigation partner at the global law firm Norton Rose Fulbright, based in New York City, and also part of the firm's fintech practice. My practice includes advising on risk issues surrounding blockchain, DeFi, and crypto projects. I'm also the creator and author of the New York Law Journal's Blockchain Law column. In addition, I serve as one of the members of the general counsel function for Norton Rose Fulbright. I'd like to introduce my fellow presenter and subcommittee co-chair, Hector Ivan Velez. Hector is currently the general counsel of Flow Carbon after having been an associate general counsel for Coinbase. He worked for major commercial banks such as Wells Fargo, HSBC, Barclays, Lehman, and Citi. Hector, maybe you could tell us some more about the business of your current company, Flow Carbon. Uh, thank you, Robert. I appreciate the introduction. Yes, Flow Carbon is a company that is um, aiming to scale the voluntary carbon market. Uh, Flow Carbon has two core businesses. Uh, one of the core businesses is off-chain project finance business. And the other is its Web3 business, where it's able to potentially tokenize carbon credits on chain. Um, a very exciting space. I look forward to getting into it a little bit more. Um, but thank you, Robert. Over to you. Okay. Well, fantastic. So, Hector, why don't we get started with the basics? What is it that we mean by asset tokenization, and how does blockchain technology fit into it? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question. It's a good to level set on what tokenization means for purposes of this discussion. Uh, very simply, tokenization is the process of converting rights to an asset uh, into a digital. Um, it has the potential to revolutionize various sectors from real estate to art to commodities and carbon credits. However, it also presents unique challenges that need to be addressed to ensure successful implementation and adoption. So just broadly speaking, tokenization is about transforming the way we exchange information and value. As I just mentioned, it is the process of converting rights to an asset into a digital, digital token on a blockchain. It's also a method that allows assets to be traded and owned on chain and potentially in a fractional manner. This, can be, this process can be applied to both tangible assets like real estate and intangible assets like patents. Tokenization to, on some levels already here, right? We know about fiat-based stable coins. So this is an aspect of tokenization that everyone's familiar with, but we want to take it to a sort of bit of broader concept. So let's walk through some of the benefits of tokenization. Uh, it can make illiquid assets more liquid by allowing fractional ownership. The blockchain space is a marketplace that is 24-7 with its settlement. 
you know, accessibility. It, tokenization democratizes access to investment opportunities. In many cases, such as that of, as that of art or perhaps real estate, access to such assets is not readily available or attainable. Tokenizing such assets allows for access where there was, where there was otherwise none to very little. Transparency. Blockchain ensures that all transactions are transparent and immutable. Efficiency. So tokenization reduces the need for intermediaries, making transactions faster and cheaper with peer-to-peer transfers. Uh, the global market, again, this is more in line with democratization, but it opens up uh, global markets for the trading of tokenized assets. Um, it also helps in reducing uh, operational expenses. Tokenization in and of itself can be broadly characterized in one of two buckets. One is security tokens, the other is utility tokens, and finally, cryptocurrencies. Security tokens are generally classified as digital assets that derive their value from an external asset. In some cases, they're intended to provide ownership rights that can and can be seen as digital shares. Utility tokens are tokens that provide users with access to a product or a service. And finally, cryptocurrencies. These are digital or virtual currencies that use cryptography for security and operate independently of central authority. So how does tokenization work? Well, without getting into the technicalities of the build, the simple explanation is that the process involves creating a digital representation of an asset on blockchain, which may be sold on both centralized and decentralized platforms. CFI and DeFi. Each token is intended to represent a unit of the underlying asset. The blockchain ensures that the ownership and transactions are recorded, secure, transparent, and immutable. That said, there are, there are a number of challenges that are posed by tokenized assets. There are a series of questions that need to be answered. Uh, first, how do we get the law to recognize and respect the fractionalized rights as to the asset that are intended to be to associated with the token. Next, when tokens are transferred and assigned, how do we get the law to, to give the corresponding full legal effect as to ownership and control of the underlying asset? Can fractionalizing ownership pose the risk of creating paralysis in the underlying asset or market? Might there be situations where the fractionalized ownership needs to be reunified, and if so, what legal and technical systems might need to exist to make that possible? These are but a few of the challenges posed by tokenization of assets, which Robert will talk a little bit more about later on in his podcast in the legal and regulatory section. But what is the future of tokenization? Well, the potential is vast. It can transform various industries by providing more liquidity, transparency and accessibility. As the technology matures and regulatory frameworks are established, tokenization can become a standard practice in many sectors. So I, and now I'd like to take time to turn over to Robert to talk about uh, potential use cases. For a fact sector. So we're going, obviously there are many possible use cases. We're going to talk about a few of some of the more I guess, prominent or at least more commonly talked about ones here. I'd like to start out with one is real estate is almost in some sense very peculiarly for tokenization because you think of real estate and one of the fundamental parts about it is that it depends upon a registry of title, A sells to B sells to C and so on. 
And that's almost the definition of what you have on a blockchain. So there's already a, there's a, a natural linkage there. And the idea is, can you take ownership of real estate, subdivide it, fractionalize it, and so on, and do it that way to, to get more benefits, of, to get the benefits of tokenization? And some of these are, the value is that it allows an individual who may have smaller amounts of capital to invest in real estate, but not at such a, an enormous financial commitment. So it breaks the barrier of high entry costs for participating in that, that asset class and that marketplace. Tokenization also can aid with liquidity because likewise, real estate is traditionally a somewhat illiquid asset. It's very hard to, to sell a big building is a complicated process. It's compared to say financial instruments where it's very easy to you know, sell a share of stock, a one share or 10 shares or a thousand shares. And tokenization can make it easier to sell fractions of properties, thus increasing market liquidity. It can also assist investors in diversification because rather than saying having to invest your entire you know, $100,000 into one property, you can own fractions of many properties with that same sum of money, which may give you spreading out your risk portfolio or your risk exposure, and thus making it perhaps an easier and safer investment for people to explore. All this being said, there are various challenges and potential cons with the tokenization of real estate, at least in the current, current market realities. The biggest one, obviously, is that tokenized real estate is still a very fairly new concept, and it can face regulatory hurdles in many jurisdictions. Uh, one of the big ones, for example, is just establishing on a technical, formal level, legal ownership. A lot of things in real property are still tied in statutes and regulations to formalities of an earlier age. And if the law does not recognize ownership as represented on a blockchain, then that becomes a difficulty because what the tokens represent conceptually may not match up with what the reality is in terms of legal formalities. And then plus you need to have, not only has to be recognized within your own jurisdiction, but potentially you may need other jurisdictions to recognize it as legal and valid as well. So there's going to be a period of time, presumably, when those sort of adjustments need to get made if tokenization of real estate is to go forward. Uh, while this is going on, this also can have things like impacts on running title searches and perhaps the cost of title insurance. If a title insurer has to check both, say now, the records and the county clerk as to who owns the property, but also what records may exist on a blockchain as to how that property may have been transferred in that area if the two are not fully integrated, uh, that could become a more complex process. It could perhaps introduce more risks into the title insurance and title search process. Uh, that uh, buyers and sellers will have to cope with. And obviously, if, say, for example, if a borrower uh, becomes insolvent or the asset fails in some way, you need to be sure that the courts are going to recognize token holders' rights uh, appropriately and that they will give full uh, you know, respect to uh, what is set forth on the blockchain of transactions that have been taking place with the tokenized representation of the real estate. And there's a, an interesting, I guess, analog to this, which happened after the financial crisis in 2008 with, say, subprime mortgages. And a lot of mortgage rights uh, and, uh, were being recorded and transferred and so on on an uh, electronic mortgage recording system called MERS, M-E-R-S. And sometimes people would bring foreclosure actions and the borrower would say, well, who is this plaintiff? I've never heard of this person. 
And they say, well, I acquired it and there's a chain of transactions on the electronic system. And they would say, well, do you have a promissory note? They say, well, I don't have the promissory note. The person who sold it to me eight stages before, who, you know, who originally stole has that note. And the sometimes the courts would say, look, we need to see the note to know that it's real and that it's current and so on. And there was basically, the problem was simply is that the law was not really set up to deal with that system. And that's something, obviously, if we tokenize real estate, we're going to have to make sure that we don't fall into that type of situation again. I mean, one of the issues that you will face here with a system like this is, you know, is the blockchain considered to actually transfer property rights in the asset itself, or is it really just a set of contractual rights among market participants, but that's a, a private contractual relationship and not the part of the official record of titles of the property is recognized by the state or the county clerk or whoever manages that is a legal matter. And these points are a lot of ones that are similar to them are going to appear in a number of the other use cases we'll talk about as well. In addition to these, these challenges, of course, there's also the issue of market adoption because traditional real estate investors might be hesitant to adopt this new model. They will uh, slow down its widespread acceptance. There, there are currently are other ways in which individuals invest in pieces of real estate. Obviously things like REITs, real estate investment trusts are well known. Properties could be held by limited partnerships or LLCs. The, and the units in those legal entities can be bought and sold, while the, even though the nominal owner of the property remains the entity. So there are other avenues as well. And whether tokenization will be viewed as the preferred method for doing this obviously remains to be seen. And then, of course, also, for all these reasons, there's a lot of complexity that introducing tokenization may introduce into the system. And how will that affect the average investor, as you know, opposed to say, the sophisticated real estate player? So those are just uh, some of the dynamics you might see in the real estate space. Another area that may well be suited for, for tokenization, another use case, and somewhat similar in many respects to real estate, are the areas of art and collectibles. Uh, similar to, say, owning a, a massive office building, piece of art can be incredibly expensive. Picasso or, or a Van Gogh, where they, every time they have an auction, their people's eyes light up as to how high the numbers are getting each time. So uh, tokenization of ownership offers the possibility that ownership can be a bit more democratized. High-value art pieces that were once only accessible to a few can now be owned by many through fractional ownership. And so now everyone can say that, yes, they too own a Van Gogh or at least one tiny sliver of it. Uh, similarly, having fractionalized ownership may make it uh, increase liquidity because it's easier to buy and sell fractions of art pieces, thus of assets that traditionally are like expensive real estate are somewhat you know, illiquid as compared to financial instruments, which can trade at lightning speed. Another great value of uh, the tokenization is that it aims at a very important part of the uh, the art market, which is the tracking of the provenance of, uh, of paintings and artworks. Because blockchain, one of its classic use cases generally, is to provide a clear and tamper-proof history of the artwork from its creation to which passes through one owner to another, et cetera, all the way through to the time when it's you know, auctioned off at a major auction house you know, in New York or London. And so blockchain is very well suited to perform that function as well, so if the ownership is represented by tokens on a blockchain, you know, that assists in that process as well. On the downside, there are some other challenges here as well. One is what I call the value perception, which is that 
the value of art, perhaps more so than many other assets, is somewhat subjective. People who are at one point in time are considered to be nobodies later on become very famous and valued and appreciated. And the reverse is probably true as well. One question that comes up is whether tokenization, whether it's vast liquidity and democratization, could lead to speculative trading and that distorts the true value of art. I mean, we saw this recently. There was a, a bull market in NFTs that ran up values and worse. We've seen things like meme trading, where all of a sudden a group of people decide to whip up a frenzy over a particular asset that really may not be real. And how will that affect so what we would think of as the real and normal market for artwork and its value. Another big challenge for artwork is the issues of, of custody, because artwork is, is a physical thing and it has to be cared for. Uh, and so if you, have a, if you have a Picasso painting, you need to ensure the safety and security of that, the physical object. It's got to be put somewhere. If it's not hanging in a museum, it's got to be stored somewhere in the right way in a warehouse. It's climate controlled and all these different things you need to do. If you have a tokenized asset where it's not just one person who's in charge of it, but it's thousands upon thousands of people are holding it, who's going to take care of those charges? Who's responsible for doing that? Who's responsible for collecting from all the owners and their particular shares? And what happens if they don't contribute the way they're supposed to, et cetera? These are obviously important issues because if the asset is not properly protected, it can lose its value if it becomes damaged or whatever over time through neglect. So these are some of the issues that tokenizing artwork and other collectibles might pose. Another area that we might turn to, and this is somewhat closer to the financial instrument side, is having to do with commodities. Again, with commodities, one of the great values of blockchain is the transparency. Tokenization can provide a very clear record of the transactions, which can reduce fraudulent activities. And also the efficiency, it can speed up the trading process, so make it much more efficient, and hopefully get more, more real prices and fairer pricing and so on. And again, it has the opportunities for tracing the provenance, because sometimes, for example, with, say, agricultural products, if there is a problem, if there's a listeria outbreak, you want to know where the crops came from. And blockchain is terrifically suited for that. I think we've all heard the stories how major retailers, for example, use this to track their, their produce so they can deal with these issues if they arise in a matter of hours rather than days like it used to be you know, before they had this. So there are some really good values for the commodity space for why you might want to use tokenization. But here again, some of the same issues recur. Could, does, a, does tokenization give more opportunities to create market volatility? And obviously, sometimes there's a lot of volatility and enough of the volatility already with commodities because of things like bad weather, creates shortages and, and things of that nature. So you don't want to, presumably you don't want to uh, create opportunities to exacerbate those kind of problems. And there is a, an adoption barrier as well, which is, I think is very much interlinked with some technical challenges because there's a, obviously there's a long and well-developed system for, for trading commodities. And we have a very complex regulatory system to do it. We have a commodities futures trading commission. We have the commodities exchange act. We have individual commodities exchanges that have rules. All these processes go on, and if we want to have tokenization in this area, we're going to need to find a way to integrate the tokenization with those systems along the way, because it's, un it's unrealistic to think that we're going to just wipe out those systems and all at once, and then tomorrow we're going to turn on tokenization. It's going to be a gradual process of switching over from 
barely tokenized to mostly tokenized to eventually to entirely tokenized. But meanwhile, we have to work with the systems in place. We have to work with the regulations in place, the statutes in place that we currently have. So we're going to have to look at whether it can work under the existing rules or will they require new laws and regulations to accommodate them. So those are uh, three of the use cases. And there's another one which we'd like to talk about, which is really Hector's area, which has to do with the area of carbon credits, which is the business of his company. So Hector, I'll, I'll turn this over to you to talk about that. Thank you, Robert. And thank you for the intro to our last use case, which is carbon credits. Not too dissimilar from sort of the com- commodities framework Robert just spoke about. Carbon credits are generally characterized as an environmental commodity in the CFTC. It's taking a keen interest in the market. Basically, a carbon credit relates to the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. And the market is split into two compliance or mandated markets. So you'll find certain jurisdictions require the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions from counterparties within the framework of, of the compliance market. Then you have a voluntary market, uh, which is the space that I operate at, which is uh, companies opt into reduction of greenhouse gas emissions uh, through the purchase of carbon credits. Now, a uh, carbon credit, or, or otherwise sometimes commonly referred to as a carbon offset, are essentially permits or certificates that grant the holder the right to emit a specified amount of carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases. Uh, to put more simply, one carbon credit allows for the emission of one metric ton of carbon dioxide or its equivalent into other greenhouse gases. In other words, carbon credits are a mechanism designed to financially incentivize the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. Now, when, we, when it comes to tokenizing carbon credits, there, there are many similarities between the other three use cases. One is enhanced transparency. So tokenization does ensure that carbon credits are genuine and not double counted, promoting trust in the system. Organization for carbon credits also promotes efficient trading. So digital tokens can be traded much more efficiently than traditional carbon credits. The, the sales and trading of traditional carbon credits is largely over the counter of OTC. It's asymmetric and opaque. So price discovery is an issue. And when you're able to tokenize something and put it on chain, you'll find that price discovery is one of the benefits. And of course, tokenization are Carbon credits is a global market, right? So it can pave the way in tokenization for the, the global trading of the carbon credit market, enhancing the environmental efforts that are being taken on by many jurisdictions, but also adding an element of transparency to the market in and of itself. But there are some questions and hurdles that we need to get through when it comes to carbon credits versus sort of the regulatory hurdles, right? So different countries and jurisdictions have different regulations for carbon credits and then also for tokenization, which poses challenges, right? So by way of example, in the U.S., we, we think of a carbon credit as an environmental commodity that may be thought of differently in other jurisdictions. How do you harmonize between the two? It's a hurdle that we need to think about. Another open question regarding carbon credits and sort of the, the, under, the ownership and fungibility of the underlying asset. Do different jurisdictions treat fungibility the same or are they different? Hey, what challenges pose for the underlying carbon credit? Uh, market manipulation is, is another potential hurdle that the market needs to think about. The ease of trading might lead to speculative trading and potential of manipulating the market. Right, The, the more we make carbon credits accessible by tokens, 
the more we need to think about what that does to the market structure and whether or not parties can take advantage of arbitrage or even efforts to try and manipulate the market in some way, shape, or form for price appreciation or, or depreciation. Of course, there's implementation costs, right? So setting up a tokenized system for carbon credits can be costly complex because the market in and of itself is complex and costly. Um, and then it's also important to note that you know, we're talking about a token. Therefore, the appropriate legal lens is to consider the legal and jurisdictional framework for both the token as well as the underlying asset and how we harmonize between the two. There are a number of efforts that are ongoing in the marketplace. The ISDA, or the Association of Swap Deals Association, is one of the institutions at the forefront of thinking about the carbon markets and we're looking to standardize and harmonize through documentation some of the underlying markets such that it may be easier to think about tokenization from that perspective. But again, these are some of the uh, pros and cons in, in the carbon credit market. You, know, you can see that it's, it's quite complex. And while there are certain benefits to tokenization, we have to look at this holistically and think through some of the challenges there. So we've talked about four use cases. And now I'd like to turn over to Robert to talk about and dive into some detail regarding the legal and regulatory challenges. Thanks, Hector. Yeah, the, the legal and regulatory challenges should not be underestimated. So let me just forget that blockchain technology still is relatively new and the law is still grappling in many areas, not just in asset tokenization, but many aspects of blockchain with how to legally categorize it. What's the best way to set it up to accomplish all its many goals, including from regional consumer protection to better markets and so on. And obviously anything you do with assets, which can be transferred into many jurisdictions, not just within the United States, but also all around the world. The regulatory framework may vary considerably, and there has to be some ability to have harmonization or at least being able in some way to be complementary so they can work with one another to do this. One of the biggest challenges is right now, just in the United States, there were just constant battles over how various tokens should be categorized. For example, should they be categorized as securities, as commodities, as some other asset class altogether, maybe one or more of the above. And the issue was really further complicated. Uh, by not just the nature of the token itself, but sometimes on how the token is marketed uh, to investors and to whom it's marketed and for what purpose. Is it actually marketed as an investment or is it marketed as, as something else? And until this complexity is reached a more, a, a better state of resolution in the law, this complexity can create uncertainty for investors and issuers of the tokens alike. So they're both going to be a little bit uncertain of where they stand. So uh, looking at the regulatory landscape, from a, a global perspective, the tokenization of assets is certainly gaining traction globally, but it does vary across the jurisdictions. There's a group called IOSCO, which, which is a global standard center for securities regulation, and they've been actively studying the implications of asset tokenization, and they've been emphasizing the need for consistent regulatory approaches if it is to work. Um, in the U.S., there is a lot of activity going on in this area as well. The Securities Exchange Commission, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, and a number of other bodies and court decisions dealing with existing statutory and regulatory frameworks have shown the importance of approaching digital assets, including tokenized assets, in a thoughtful and consistent manner. I mean, right now, for example, in front of Congress, is more than a half dozen sort of major legislative proposals about how to treat various types of tokens that may represent tokenized assets of some kind. 
with a tremendous variation in how they treat the asset, who should regulate the asset, what type of authority they should have over the asset, what requirements should be for the creators and issuers of the assets. So uh, there's a very lively debate going on. But while that debate is still bubbling at an intense and in, with intensity, which it is right now, it may be a little bit difficult for actual projects to get off the ground with confidence. Even similarly at the state law level, if you have, for example, if you tokenize shares of a corporation, you need to have state corporation law. Will it recognize that these, who the right corporate shareholders are at any particular point in time? So for example, when you call an annual meeting and it goes to the shareholders of records and the shareholders of records are, are changing literally minute by minute on a blockchain, that can pose a challenge as to how that's going to be handled, say, under state corporation laws. Um, and maybe it may be that, for example, that states may say, look, we don't want to have fractionalized shares. It creates too many difficulties. Uh, and that may be an issue that we need to, to deal with as a practical matter going forward in this area. Europe is an interesting jurisdiction in this regard right now because Europe can, you know, can be described as being fairly forward-thinking in this area. Certain countries like Switzerland and Malta have pioneered regulatory frameworks for digital assets of various kinds. The European Securities and Markets Authority, ESMA, has been very vocal about the potential benefits and risks of tokenized assets. And just recently, the European Union member states gave their final stamp of approval to a regulation on markets in crypto assets called MICA, and which has probably been described as the world's first really comprehensive set of cryptocurrency regulations. But this is really just getting off the ground now. And perhaps we hope we get, they, they got it right, because if they didn't, there should be a lot of difficulty in this area. And the same would be true for regulations that might be adopted uh, about tokenized assets more generally. I mean, an important factor in this area, consideration in this area is the need for regulatory clarity. The idea behind Mika is to provide a clear legal, legal framework for crypto assets in the EU, and its emphasis is on consumer protection, mandating transparency through white papers associated with the issuance of a token, setting up operational standards for service providers, and for stablecoins, introducing certain specific provisions due to their potential financial impact. And that probably could be true for other kinds of tokenized assets as well, particularly of a more financial nature. In other areas, to the extent tokenization is being used for infrastructure development, it's important to have token exchanges and custody solutions that support those efforts. For example, the World Economic Forum has discussed the importance of infrastructure in its studies on tokenized assets. And lastly, of course, you need to have stakeholder collaboration. Collaboration is, is vital. You need to have dialogue between regulators, financial institutions, and technology providers in order to set industry standards that will work for everyone, as opposed to setting up uh, sort of short-sighted systems that will end up sort of in a, you know, a few years' time or when, a, when some disruptive market effect uh, event happens, creating a uh, sort of market dysfunctionality, a panic, or, or worse. So to achieve some scale with tokenization, what are the things that we need to do? We need to first focus on standardization. So there's a consistent approach across countries and states, provinces, and so on. We need to have systems that are interoperable, that they will have seamless interaction between different tokenization platforms. But that's really essential. Otherwise, you get a very balkanized system and no one can talk and work with each other. And this is something that global forums like the G20 have discussed in the context of, of digital assets. There also needs to be, obviously, education and awareness. Uh, 
regulatory bodies have stressed the importance of educating stakeholders about the nuances of tokenized assets and their risks and limitations and benefits and so on. And of course, along with all this, or one of the goals all this is seeking to achieve is making sure there's adequate consumer protection. Because ultimately, if consumer protection fails, then tokenization is going to fail. So as just, really just summing up a bit some here on the hurdles to achieving scale we've talked about are the regulatory uncertainty and complexity, the, the various legal questions we've talked about, issues as to ownership and title, and making sure that they're properly recognized by courts and other bodies that need to treat the ownership properly. We also need to think about the value proposition because it's a theory essentially right now that fractionalization of assets will, will yield big benefits and people will want to do it, but that's really just a prediction. And it might turn out, for example, that there really isn't as much demand for you know, tokenized real estate or tokenized Picassos or something like that, that we think, and we'll have to see about that. There are going to be compliance obligations with all these things with fractionalized ownership. There are going to be tax issues about how their tax treatment is, is, is treated, is regarded. And how do we go about identifying and meeting compliance obligations when ownership is dispersed among many people as opposed to centralized in just one person? We need to have technology that's robust and secure that can support these systems and not be abused and attacked. If the markets prove to be somewhat illiquid, we may have challenges of asset valuation when people start to tokenize assets in the first place, because at some point, someone has to say, if I'm tokenizing the Picasso, I think it's worth X, and therefore each token is worth Y. But so that initial price obviously is very important, how that gets set. And which the stock exchange is one thing, but the art market is something else. There is a risk that if we have multiple competing platforms arise, you get market fragmentation, that the markets will not be able to work with each other. You know, for a while, they'll work great within themselves, but they may not be able to, to go beyond their own limits. We'll need to deal with issues of custodians to safeguard assets in a, in a proper way. And ultimately, what we really need to develop is a, is a market infrastructure where various aspects such as broker-dealers, exchanges, platforms, asset management, data management, redemption, and asset disposal are handled. And these are in need of further developments. We're sometimes, I guess, spoiled by where we are in history. We don't realize that the, for example, the financial system we have today was a product of decades of learning lessons the hard way. And no doubt with asset tokenization, there'll be some hard lessons to learn there too. But I think if we approach it thoughtfully, there may be excellent opportunities to be gotten from the experiment to make it worth worth going forward. Hector, do you have any final words you'd like to say? I, nothing other than to say tokenization could unlock a number of market efficiencies provided we resolve some of these hurdles and complexities in the marketplace. And it's promising, but a challenge at the same time. So. Well, great. Well, from, on behalf of the, the Distributed Ledger Technology Subcommittee of the New York City Bar's Task Force on Digital Technologies, we thank you very much for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed today's program. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New York City Bar Association podcast. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers, and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts Apple, Spotify, Google, or at our website at www.nycbar.org podcasts. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.